Kevin Rothrock here, host of The Naked Pravda, with a special request. If you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian or both, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And there are still, reportedly, many thousand Russian troops assembling near the border with Ukraine and also inside Belarus, though the panic in the Western media seems to have subsided slightly in the last week or so. They're no longer using the word imminent when talking about Russian invasion inside the White House. So that's a, that's a load off. Officials in Moscow also remain adamant that there's uh, no invasion planned. So don't worry. With so much of the West's attention on Ukraine right now, you've got to wonder what's happening elsewhere along Russia's borders. It's a big country. They've got a lot of border. On this week's show, Medusa News Editor Eilish Hart speaks to journalist Katie Marie Davies about cultural developments in the other breakaway regions around Russia's periphery, in Transnistria, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. But before we get to that interview... Let's review some of the latest news and noteworthy analytical essays recently published in or about Russia. Over the last month or so, a lot has been written about whether Russia will invade Ukraine or whether it will expand its invasion of Ukraine. Memorably, on January 24th, military expert Michael Kaufman wrote an essay for War on the Rocks, where he argued that a large war in Europe is likely in the coming weeks. By the time this podcast episode is released, that article will have come out 12 days prior. Citing troop mobilization indications and indicators, Kaufman argues that Russian occupation of large parts of Ukraine is likely. At the other end of the spectrum, if that's the word for it, Bloomberg columnist Leonid Bershitsky has suggested that the U.S. deliberately cultivated invasion hysteria to bait Vladimir Putin with the same trap that Moscow used against Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili in the 2008 war, trying to goad Putin into military action that would weaken Russia's long-term strategic interests. Foreign policy experts inside Russia are also arguing about the utility of Russia's military buildup outside Ukraine. For example, Fyodor Lukyanov, who was recently a guest on this show, has stated in multiple op-eds and TV appearances that he thinks the Kremlin's escalation strategy in Ukraine is working, insofar as the West is finally engaging Russia's European security concerns, though he admits, like everyone, that there's been no breakthrough yet. Addressing Moscow's concerns in Europe opens a big can of worms. Not only does it risk trampling Eastern Europe's huddled masses yearning to be free of Russian domination, but it also means revisiting the end of the Cold War itself. In an op-ed for the state newspaper Brasiskaya Gazeta, 
Lukyanov argued that Russia's pressure on the West has at least revealed that NATO's post-Cold War enlargement made the alliance weaker, not stronger. With so many members, he says, there's no longer a single threat that worries each partner equally, while the organization is simultaneously big enough now that the United States can usually find at least some members who are willing to join its latest military operation somewhere in the world. As a result, NATO paradoxically shifted to justifying itself as an instrument of stability and democratic transformation at the exact moment that it started fighting actual wars, which is not something it did during the Cold War. On the other hand, Russian International Affairs Council Director General Andrei Kartunov rejects claims by analysts like Lukyanov about NATO expansion. In an op-ed published on January 31st in the newspaper Zvestia, Kartunov advocated the demystification of NATO's supposed existential threat to Russia, pointing out that membership in the alliance doesn't always determine countries' relationship with Moscow. Look at Italy, for example. He questions even the notion that NATO spreads Western cultural values alien to Russia's traditional morals. Just look at Turkey, which has gradually shifted from Western liberal civilization despite its NATO membership. Understanding the different perspectives on NATO is also at the center of an essay published by the Carnegie Moscow Center, written by Alexander Balnov, where he points out that the West's concept of national security is based on an inequality of threats posed by democracies and autocracies. In other words, democracies believe they cannot be aggressors because they are responsive to their citizens who intrinsically oppose wars of aggression. How nice for democracies. Western nations are also inclined to believe that the lives of people living in autocracies are secondary to those people's pursuit of freedom, which again, lowers the threshold for the use of force against states led by tyrants. Following this logic, any democratic state's conflict with an autocratic state is defensive and legitimate by default. Western thinking in global politics simply doesn't recognize the legitimacy of autocratic states' international concerns. And this makes democracies inherently dangerous neighbors for autocracies, explains Baunov. On February 2nd, the newspaper Novaya Gazeta published an interview with Vladimir Denisov, who witnessed firsthand the Kremlin's failure to prevent NATO enlargement in the 1990s. Denisov served as a deputy to Russian Security Council General Alexander Lebed. In 1996, when Lebed visited NATO's headquarters in Brussels with Denisov, a U.S. general apparently told him that Russia had suffered either a knockout or a knockdown in its clash with the United States. And he said Moscow should stay down and accept defeat. And what if Russia bounces back? Lebed asked. Ha! Russia will never recover its old strength, the American general told him. Maybe not. But here we are, more than a quarter of a century later. And it still sounds about right to talk about U.S.-Russian relations in terms of a sport based on punching each other in the face. Before we get to our interview with Katie Marie Davies, Let's run through a few big events in Russia this week, just so nobody hears this podcast and walks away thinking that the only thing happening east of the Ukrainian border is a military buildup. There's stuff happening in Russia. The most important and unfortunately deeply disturbing domestic development this week was the Kadyrov regime's escalating conflict with journalists and human rights activists in Chechnya. On Wednesday, February 2nd, the Chechen authorities mobilized what they say were hundreds of thousands of people in the capital, in Grozny, to protest the family of a prominent anti-torture activist, Abu Bakar Yangulbayev, whose mother Chechen police took from the family's home in Nizhny Novgorod, more than a thousand miles from Grozny, and brought back to Chechnya and imprisoned. The demonstration in Grozny came a day after 
a federal lawmaker from Chechnya, threatened to decapitate members of the Yungubayev family. Ramzan Kadyrov has denounced the Yungubayevs as terrorist accomplices and demanded their arrest or destruction. The guy talks like a Bond villain. And he's even threatened to hunt him down abroad in exile. Kadyrov has also called Novaya Gazeta journalist Yelena Milashina and Committee Against Torture director Igor Kalyapin terrorists and terrorist accomplices. He likes terrorist accomplices. Terrorists and terrorist accomplices. This is how Kadyrov views his critics. Milashina subsequently left the country, citing safety concerns. The Kremlin has declined to say anything about these threats of violence, except to dismiss Kadyrov's remarks as his personal opinion. How nice. Kadyrov gets a personal opinion about killing people. Last week, a documentary by Daniel Rohr about Alexei Navalny debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. I had the chance to watch it, and it's a remarkable movie for its access to the Navalny family and his research team, and purely in terms of storytelling. HBO Max and CNN Films produced the movie, but HBO's distributor in Russia says it has no plans to buy the rights to the new documentary. In other words, people in Russia who want to see this movie will have to rely on VPNs and peer-to-peer networks in other words, piracy, which I think is fully in spirit of Navalny's story, roughly a year since he was imprisoned after returning home to Moscow. As Navalny's life dazzles and inspires film critics on the American silver screen, the authorities back home are mopping up the last remaining evidence that he ever existed. On February 1st, Russia's federal censor ordered more than a dozen independent media outlets to delete dozens of news reports summarizing anti-corruption research published by Navalny's team over the past several years. This includes last year's bombshell investigation into Vladimir Putin's supposed seaside palace, as well as revelations about corruption allegedly involving Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, former Prime Minister and former President Dmitry Medvedev, the head of Russia's space agency Dmitry Rogozin, and a bunch more senior state officials. Last December, Russia's censor issued similar orders to the independent media to unpublished reports based on investigative work by the now outlawed news website Prakt. The loss of Team Navalny's invaluable research wasn't the only thing that disappeared from the Russian mass media this week. On February 3rd, Russia's foreign ministry revoked the press credentials of all Deutsche Welle staff in Russia and ordered the closure of the organization's Moscow studio. Russian officials also vowed to terminate the outlet's satellite and broadcasting output in Russia, and the ministry says it will also initiate a procedure to label the outlet a foreign agent in Russia. What's all this about? Moscow says it is retaliation for German regulators' decision that the state media outlet Russia Today's German-language branch must stop broadcasting its programs in Germany because its Serbian license for cable and satellite transmission isn't valid in Germany, despite RT's claims to the contrary. RTDE, as it's called, was promptly removed from Europe's satellite network, but it's still available online and through RT's mobile app. If you've been following Russia's misadventures in Germany, you'll know that last September, YouTube shut down two German-language RT channels, citing terms of service violations related to misinformation about the coronavirus. So now RTDE can't broadcast to its target audience in Germany, 
and DW's Moscow bureau can't report from Russia. And that's the news. Now comes the moment in this week's show when we pivot to our guest, Katie Marie Davies, who is the features editor at the Calvert Journal, which is probably the world's leading repository of English language reporting on the contemporary culture of Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Russia, and Central Asia. Last December, Katie wrote an article titled Creating New Cultures in Eastern Europe's Breakaway States. In the text, she explores how geopolitical limbo has shaped the cultures of the unrecognized republics of South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and Transnistria. And she describes work by local artists, architects, and writers to build their own modern identities. Here's Medusa News Editor Eilish Hart with the interview. As you know, I I reached out to you after reading your article for the Calvert Journal titled Creating New Cultures in Eastern Europe's Breakaway States. So I just wanted to start by asking you how you came to this topic. You know, culture is the Calvert Journal's beat, but what made you want to dive into and compare and contrast the cultural development in these three breakaway states in particular? So we started looking at this as part of After the Fall, which was the Calvert Journal's way of looking back on the last three decades, the 30 years which have happened since the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of the things we really wanted to do was look at individual countries because, you know, we're still used in a way to looking at, you know, the former Soviet space as this homogenous block. But obviously, you know, 30 years on, three decades, that's a whole generation of people, you know, who have been living completely in independence. So we wanted to look at the individual countries, the individual cultures, and more importantly, the contemporary culture. You know, what has happened in these three three decades, in these 30 years. And obviously, it's a lot easier to look at, you know, countries with a strong identity. A lot of things have changed, but a lot of these countries, you know, obviously have long histories long before anyone thought of the Soviet Union. But particularly, we focused on uh, Transnistria, Abhazia, South Ossetia, which since the fall of the Soviet Union have been kind of trapped in this in-between state just due to the conflict that's been going on there over territory, over where these where these areas belong. And then obviously there is, you know, these areas have their own distinct history. But when it comes to them forming a contemporary culture, that's something that's a little bit more challenging for them just because they don't necessarily have the same connections. They can't reach out to the world in the same way because they're still kind of in this limbo state, you know, if you're if you're applying for a grant, if you're trying to go overseas and exhibit in a museum, you know, your country doesn't exist on paper. And how do you get around that as an artist? So, you know, given all those complications, how did you, like you as a journalist, approach reporting this story? Like, what were some of the challenges that, that you came up against? And what are some of the difficulties when it comes to reporting on culture in these breakaway regions? Biggest challenge for me was that obviously because of the COVID-19 situation, but also because of, you know, different practicalities, I couldn't get out there and visit Transnistria or South Setia or Abhazia, which means I was trying to reach out and find people and connect with people online. And that isn't, you know, unusual in a sense, you know, as as journalists and as people in the digital world, you know, we're always reaching out to people that we've we've not met in person. But but because these, you know, these are small countries, they don't always necessarily have 
a very strong online presence in the same way as it's, you know, it's quite easy to reach out to artists from Russia or from Ukraine. But to find people on the ground in Abhazia was a little bit more difficult. You know, one of the benefits of what we do at the Calvert Journal is that we do specialize in culture. So we did already know a few people. We did already have some kind of contacts on the ground or, or friends who knew friends who, who kind of reach out and, and talk to. But it's also, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, it can be a delicate topic and it can be like a difficult conversation to have, not just because of, you know, the political situation, but just, you know, it can be kind of boring, I think, for a lot of these artists who are, especially, you know, in Transnistria, in Abhazia, like, they're, they're so used to outsiders coming in and telling their story. And it's always the same story. It's always, you know, this is a country that nobody's heard of. It doesn't exist. And, you know, look at all the weird kind of Soviet things they've got going on here. But I was, I was really grateful for the, uh, for the artists and the architects and the creative people who wanted to talk and were open to talking. You know, we really obviously couldn't have done it without them. Like it was, it was hard to find people kind of working on the ground who kind of identified themselves as an artist from these places. Um, you know, working as a journalist, what I always want to get is a good spread of voices. But I think what you always want is someone who's going to add something to the conversation and to explore the idea a little bit more. So a couple of the people I spoke to were photographers working in Transnistria. And a lot of the work they've done have been really great. But one thing I really kind of appreciated them opening up about was kind of how Transnistria gets portrayed, you know, more widely in the world. And this is when we talk about, you know, lots of photo stories and lots of news articles, you know, the same story, Transnistria, it's isolated, it's kind of weird, it's kind of Soviet style, you know, look at these, these strange pictures and being able to talk to them about it and them saying, you know, yeah, we, we've taken those, those kinds of images before. I guess it'd be really easy to get, you know, defensive on that. But for them to kind of talk and say, you know, I've met people doing these images. People have asked me in the past to take these kind of pictures, but I decided that's not what I wanted to do anymore um, or that I kind of wanted to push myself. So I think, you know, honesty is, is always what you're looking for. How do, how do you approach that as a journalist, but also as an editor, right? Like people are pitching you stories. Is this something you you come up against a lot in terms of reporting on culture, not just, you know, in breakaway states, but in the former Soviet Union in general? What we try and do is make sure that people are telling their stories, if that makes sense. It's always kind of a weird position to be on. Like I, you know, I specialize in foreign reporting, so I'll go to places to different countries and report on what's happening there. But you do have to be aware that, you know, you are an outsider. It's not meant to be you telling the story. You're meant to be helping other people to tell their story. And I think with, you know, working as an editor, if somebody pitches me a story about Transnistria and, you know, they've been on holiday there for a couple of weeks, I, I'm glad for them. Like, I'm, I'm glad that they went and they had a really nice time. But you do have to think as a writer, as someone who makes stuff as an editor, am I, am I the right person to tell this story? Because you know, like people from Transnistria, the artists there themselves, you know, sometimes they will make work which kind of fits in with certain stereotypes or sometimes they'll challenge it. And that's almost kind of their right because they live there. That's, that's, their, that's their culture. Those are their stereotypes. And if they want to kind of explore them by making work about them, then they should go for it. But it's all about having 
a bit of thought behind what you're doing and what you're making. Two of the big artistic themes that come up in your article are isolation and identity. So could you talk a bit about how these two themes are, are intertwined and how we sort of see that manifesting itself in, in art and in culture? The most important thing is that, you know, culture is never a vacuum. A connection is so important in culture because, you know, when we talk about culture, it's the difference between that and creativity. I mean, creativity is like a human thing. People are always going to be making things. They're always going to be like, you know, mixing songs or making gifts or, you know, you know, being creative and expressing themselves. But it's the difference between that and, you know, what's, you know, makes a culture, what makes like a creative infrastructure, like a creative industry, like something you can kind of hang on to, something that's like more than an individual person making stuff. But all the kind of things which kind of come around that, it's the step beyond that where you can um, meet other people, people like you, and kind of talk about what you're doing and hear about, you know, hear each other's thoughts and, you know, get feedback on what you're doing. And I think that's what's important when we talk about kind of connection and isolation. You know, it is, it's important when you're making stuff and when you're creating stuff to have those kind of, those ties and those binds. And there's the ties within the community itself, you know, in Transnistria, in Abhazia, in South Ossetia. And one of the things the guys I talked to mentioned is a lack of spaces, a lack of galleries, a lack of places where people can meet and have that connection with other people, with other artists. You know, even within, you know, these regions themselves, it's not necessarily be about a big international audience or reaching these big European galleries. It's being able to connect with other people like you and that is you know part of forming your your identity you know what does it mean to be an Abhazian artist you might be able to decide in yourself but to ever really kind of get that idea you need to speak to other Abhazian artists like other people like you and think about okay what does it mean what does it mean to be us so there's that part of connection the kind of connections that you have in a community and you know all of these regions have been through conflict and they're still kind of rebuilding those places where people can meet um, because it does need inv investment. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's money. It's all these practical things to build places where people can meet and put funding on for, you know, kids to go and play around with guitars. It's all those things. And then there's obviously the international kind of arena. And I think that's where it was really interesting to me is that we are, we're so used to looking at these states, you know, Transnistria, Abhazia, South Ossetia. Uh, as being similar because they're almost in this kind of similar um, administrative situation where they're unrecognized states. But there's a lot of differences there in terms of, you know, Transnistria is actually quite connected to Moldova and there's a lot of people moving in and out. And to a certain extent, you know, that's great because, you know, they have a lot more movement, a lot more kind of new ideas, but there's also the, the brain drain, which I mentioned in the article, you know, people move out of Transnistria, they move out to Moldova, then they, you know, move elsewhere. Um, but what I kind of found was, you know, in Abhazia and South Ossetia, because of the political situation with, say, Georgia, it's a lot more tense, is there's less of that flow of information and ideas. Um, and that's also a problem. The other kind of lens that these breakaway states are viewed through and reported on through is their relationship with Russia. Right. But how does this manifest itself culturally? Is there, you know, influence there or connections there in terms of the art world or in terms of pop culture? One of the really interesting things which came out of my article and talking to people is this idea of 
everyone is influenced by everything. You know, one of the guys asked me, you know, I think we're too late to be talking about a Transnistrian culture. Like, you know, we're too late to be talking about, you know, any one national culture because we're all so connected now. You know, even if you're talking about Russian culture, well, Russian culture is influenced by US culture, by Chinese culture, by Japanese culture, by by everything else. You know, obviously, because of, you know, language links and geographical links. Sure, you know, there might be different similarities or different, you know, a feeling of closeness, but we live in this this huge world now where we're all connected and, you know, the flow of ideas online is is more free than, you know, anyone could ever have imagined in 1991 and 1992 when uh, all of this conflict started. Do you think there's a comparison to be made to the culture scene in the self-proclaimed people's republics in eastern Ukraine? You know, I think culture definitely is coming out of those areas. One of the things that you know, we covered a few years back was different people making zines, like there's, there's people making music in these areas. You know, creativity never stops, like the people making stuff, they'll, they'll never stop. And it doesn't matter if there's a war going on or anything else. But what gets blocked or what gets damaged is that infrastructure, the places where people can meet and talk, the places where they can show their work. I think maybe the difference between the breakaway republics is as in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and uh, Luhansk and Donetsk is that there's still quite a lot of focus on those areas, you know, rightly so. But it just means that, you know, there's still funding, there's different initiatives. Um, I know there are projects where you know, docu- documentary makers and filmmakers will go into uh, cities and work with young people and give them kind of like a platform to uh, show their work. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's never people's creativity or you know, always the culture, the culture never stops. It's just our ability to show it and share it and access it. What What's always hard as a cultural journalist is that you only ever feel like you're scratching the surface. You know, there's so much out there because people are always making things, people are always creating things, but it, it's almost just finding them. And it's great that we have the internet now and all of these tools, but a big part of why I think the Calvert Journal is important is that we really try and go out and find people um, who are doing awesome things but might not always have the platform or the connections to kind of spread their work to a wider audience. There are so many talented, gifted, creative people out there doing amazing things, but you need more than that. You need more than just amazing people to to build a culture. They need they need supports. They need the kind of the platform. They need people to 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 show their work to the world. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from journalist Katie Marie Davies, features editor at the Calvert Journal, about her December article, Creating New Cultures in Eastern Europe's Breakaway States. On next week's show, The Naked Pravda welcomes Jill Dougherty and Dr. Hannah Noda, the hosts of a fascinating new project from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, featuring in-depth interviews with former U.S. ambassadors to Russia and the USSR. Tune in next week to hear more about that series and its hosts' impressions. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. If you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare, of course. Thanks for listening and come back soon. Call